Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of a Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. My name is Mike Delisio, and as always, I'm joined by Sebastian Dennison. Seb, how in the heck are you? Things are going really well. Um, I'm I, I'm actually really excited about this guest because we've had some really uh, fun sort of overlapping parts of practice. Um, probably he's unaware of some of it, so I'm I'm excited. Like this is this is a really fun part of practice. Which if if you're into it, it's it's super rewarding. So yeah, um, some of our favorite episodes is when we have the opportunity to sit down with involvement or associations outside of pharmacy specific um, to, to our, our amazing guest that's been uh, or has taken the time out of his schedule to meet with us. And that's none other, none other than Dr. David Glasser, who serves as the Secretary of Federal Affairs from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. So Dr. Glasser, welcome to the Mortar and Pestle. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's ab- an absolute pleasure. And you know, Probably a mouthful too, and always we, when it comes to Seb and I, we love to dive right into the information and and obviously have the opportunity to learn more about you specifically, um, given the magnitude and the significance around compounding pharmacy and, and ophthalmology care. So maybe you can share with our audience a bit more about you and, and how you've assumed the role of Secretary of Federal Affairs. Sure. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm actually retired from clinical practice fairly recently. I'm on the emeritus faculty at uh, Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute. Uh, I was a cornea external disease specialist, did a fair amount of inferior segment surgery, corneal transplants, cataract surgery, took care of a lot of patients with uh, infectious keratitis, where uh, compounded medications were really our go-to treatment for many decades and still are. So in my role as the Academy's Secretary for Federal Affairs, we deal with a lot of uh, advocacy issues and regulatory issues around uh, making drugs available uh, so that uh, we as physicians you know, have the choice of the drug to use as well as payment issues. Where has been the, I guess you can say the biggest link specifically to PCCA and, and how is PCCA linked to the Academy of Ophthalmology specifically? Well, you know, we all remember uh, you know, the horrors of uh, the NECC uh, debacle and uh, the ensuing uh, DQSA legislation, which put in place, you know, some significant um, safeguards for compounding. And, you know, we now have the the 503As and the 503Bs. And for you know, the, the typical compounder, it, it really is reassuring for the clinician to know that a compounder is in compliance with the PCCA uh, regulations. It gives us a real sense of security that we're less likely to have a surprise. And we've had surprises, uh, even after the DQSA. You know, our largest volume compounded drug is Avastin, which was repackaged for intravitreal injection. And uh, even with the DQSA, there have been in the past occasional episodes or clusters 
of contamination. And fortunately, uh, those have become very rare you know, and more or less one-off. So I think it's very important for a clinician to know the compounder he's dealing with and to know that they are adhering to at least a minimum set of standards. And I think the PCCA standards are very reassuring. So kind of following up with that, like in, we are talking about ophthalmology and we're talking about the position of, of not only need, but also safety, but also sort of some of the barriers that we're starting to encounter with respect to some of the federal uh, oversight. And so I just wanted you to touch upon this and, and then we're gonna kind of continue the conversation from there, so. Sure, so, you know, one of the um, most important so perhaps not the largest in volume needs is uh, office use, you know, having drug on hand for emergency treatment of infections. This can be antibiotics, antifungals, antivirals, antiamoebics. And um, they really became unavailable without a patient-specific prescription after the DQSA went into effect. So we're now in a position where when a patient comes in with an urgent uh, need for an antibiotic, if we're in an office setting, uh, it may mean we have to send that patient you know, to a hospital or a tertiary care center. Now, if they come in with endophthalmitis and we need an intravitreal injection of antibiotic, if we're in a large facility, it may not be a problem. Uh, if we're uh, a small private practice, it's a bigger problem. If they come in with uh, you know, a bad infectious keratitis, and uh, we need something more than one of the commercially available fluoroquinolones, and we may need uh, compounded vancomycin or something else. And uh, with serious ocular infections, hours and days make a difference. So getting that drug in the eye that day really makes a difference. And this is where compounders really come to the rescue because we just don't have those things available. And, and it is important to note that like you've kind of already touched upon this as we want to work with good compounders that are competent and adhering to the standards of, of quality and safety and USP standards for cleanliness and prevention of microbial contamination, but also access and, and rapid access. And this translates to all levels of compounding, not just the ophthalmology. For those, for those of you not engaged in sterile, this is still very germane because this need that we're seeing here is actually kind of more of a, of a more of a sort of very apparent need uh, because of the acute setting, but also um, it, it, it's a broader conversation. It's not just ophthalmology. So, so don't don't run away because we're talking about ophthalmology. Um, <laughs> now, continuing on that 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 thought process. You're talking about the acute needs, and so so kind of your 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 need is like you send them out to a, to a to a hospital, or or you're looking for someone to kind of belong. But on a broader scale, um, people kind of look at it and they will just go down to the local pharmacy and pick up the the commercially available product. But in ophthalmology, and this is where I kind of get really excited, is there's so many variants in need and so many subtleties in the in the practice. And I was hoping you could kind of touch upon it so people understand sort of the, the breadth of what we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, ophthalmology is always sort of the odd man out compared to uh, many of the other primary care specialties. Uh, the 
mode of delivery for eye medications is different. You know, it's topical. Uh, whether it's something like, you know, you drop a pill on the floor, you can pick it up and dust it off and still take it. You drop a drop on the floor, you can't. <laughs> Don't tell you, I know. I'm joking. But, um, you know, we just can't use the commercially available medication that's designed for oral use or intravenous use. You know, it, it hugely has to be compounded. Now, there are some uh, over-the-counter, you know, antibiotic ointments. That's fine. There are many over the uh, many um, prescription, you know, glaucoma medications, dry eye medications, anti-infectives, and you know, for the bulk of our patients, that works. But there's a significant subset of patients who have the need for something a little different, and there are a number of reasons that may be the case. They may need something. Um, at a lower concentration than is commercially available or a higher concentration than is commercially available. They may need something that has no preservative in it. You know, dry eye and ocular surface disease is very common. So is glaucoma, where you need to take eye drops multiple times a day. And the preservatives in those eye drops can contribute to some of that ocular surface disease. So there are very few glaucoma medications that are commercially available that are preservative-free. So we have patients who need that. And if they can get that, that can sometimes mean the difference between managing their disease with eye drops versus needing to move on to a surgical intervention. And now when we're talking about all of these aspects, understanding that um, probably now in the, in the medical side, so the, the MD side, the ophthalmology side, that you recognize that you can't prepare these in your office anymore, nor do you want to sort of be culpable for trying to do it in, in that potential for contamination. And so you need compounding pharmacies to exist. You need us to adhere to those standards. Um, but it's a very kind of collaborative and, in, and dependent approach to this treatment. Yes? Absolutely. You know, it really helps to have a relationship with a compounder uh, so they know what you need they know what you want and you know uh, what you're going to get you know it's funny you mentioned the um doing it yourself in the office years ago when the dqsa first was you know being talked about in our state of maryland the state was uh, in the process of enacting very restrictive legislation uh, for uh, compounded medications. And uh, one of the arguments that we heard from some of the legislators was, uh, you know, why don't you just make it yourself? And my answer was, look, you know, if I'm going to put a needle in your eye, uh, do you want that medication prepared by someone who has the proper laminar flow hood and sterile environment to make sure it's not contaminated? Or do you want me to do it in my back office? Do you want it to be done by someone who does that every day, every day of the year, every day of the week, and knows how to do the dilutions? Or do you want me to do that when I'm in a rush between patients because now I'm seeing you as an emergency patient and I have to figure out what the dilution is for this antibiotic that I'm going to put in your eye? I think the answer is pretty obvious. You know, you want the pro to do it. 
you don't want the pharmacist to put the needle in the eye, but you don't want the physician to be the one mixing up the medication. So you want the guy who really knows how to do it to do it. So this leads directly into the advocacy efforts of your group, your association. And so where, where are you making inroads and where kind of now the listeners are probably like, yeah, what are you guys doing? What are you up to? And how far have you gotten? Sure. Well, yeah. let me start with our biggest success. So, you know, one of the, the biggest things we used, which I mentioned, was Avastin, which is repackaged for intravitreal injection. That drug was actually available before any of the FDA-approved medications for uh, treatment of macular degeneration or uh, diabetic macular edema. And it was thanks to ophthalmologists and compounders who repackaged the Avastin and found that it actually could be used in the eye and was effective. Um, and we went so far at one point, because it's off-label, there were issues with getting it paid for by uh, Medicare. Uh, and you know, the alternative was you know, a $1,000 shot versus a $50 or $100 shot. Uh, so it made a big difference, not only to the healthcare system, but also to the individual patients out of pocket costs. So we were very aggressive in advocating for coverage of Avastin. We were successful in having uh, CMS approve uh, a comparative uh, trial between Avastin and Lucentis, which showed non-inferiority. That was a huge success. We've had a little tougher time uh, with some of the FDA regulations around bulk substances and getting availability of some of the drugs we want. And, you know, I think it relates to uh, the FDA's prioritization of minimizing risk versus, you know, access to care. So for some of these low volume drugs uh, needed for infection, uh, it's tough to get a 503B interested in producing, you know, very small quantities for office use. Uh, yet uh, it's also very difficult to get the FDA to agree to put them on the bulks list and allow perhaps the 503As to use them without a patient specific prescription. So we're kind of running into a wall there, but we continue to uh, talk to the FDA and try to show them, you know, where uh, these drugs can be useful. On a, a higher volume side, uh, moxifloxacin, which is a fluoroquinolone we use for intracameral, intraocular injection at the end of cataract surgery, uh, is uh, you know, probably the most effective drug that we have in the U.S. for reducing the risk of endophthalmitis after cataract surgery. So surgeons like to use that. It works better than using antibiotic eye drops before or after the surgery, reducing the risk of infection. Uh, and there is a commercially available drug. Uh, the problem with it is even though it's the right concentration, uh, the volume that can be injected can result in some toxicity. So you not only have to have the right concentration, you have to have the right volume. And that's where compounders can help us. So the prepackaged dose comes to the OR, you know that it's the right concentration and the right volume, and you just inject. Um, 
the FDA has difficulty with keeping moxifloxacin on the bulks list because they see a commercially available drug at the right concentration. And that doesn't fit their criteria of really needing a drug on the bulks list because to their mind, it's safer to use the FDA approved drug. So there are nuances there. Um, and we continue to talk with the FDA and to push for these drugs. Uh, there are others. Um, you know, we like to use phenylephrine in the eye to dilate the pupil. It uh, can be very effective in something called IFIS, which is um, floppy iris syndrome, intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, often seen in, in uh, patients on uh, certain drugs for, you know, prostate uh, disease. And uh, that can make the surgery difficult and uh, increase risk of complications with the iris sort of flopping around. And phenylephrine does a very good job when placed intracamerally at um, maintaining a dilated pupil and reducing that floppiness. Uh, so that's one we really would like to have on the bulks list, but there is a combination drug with phenylephrine and ketorolac that can be used intracamerally. So you know, the FDA sees that as uh, an unnecessary risk, but we don't need ketorolac in, in many of these cases. You know, why use a drug you don't need if you can compound just phenylephrine? So there are a number of things. You know, from a really high level, and maybe I'll kind of cap this off for our audience, and it'll probably share a lot more in terms of what you do specifically with the Academy of Ophthalmology, Dr. Glasser, but I think I'm more curious to, to know when there are these types of concerns about either items on the bulk list or you know what compounding pharmacies are able to do, do you interface directly with the FDA or is this something whereas you're also engaging with Congress to get the word out and to also facilitate the communication? Yeah, we do both. Uh, we do advocate with FDA and meet with them on a regular basis. We've participated in multiple listening sessions with them. Uh, we have good relationships with uh, the, the, um, the staff at FDA, and um, we actually work together very well in most cases to make sure that things are available. Um, when we run into serious needs, we will go to Congress. We'll ask um, our congressional um, leaders uh, to write to the FDA and uh, try to argue for, you know, the specifics that we need. So, you know, one of the places where we have uh, advocated uh, with Congress is really to try to keep drugs available. So physicians have the ability to choose what's best for the patient. And, you know, we are on the same page with the oncologists and the rheumatologists who you know, often need to use um, expensive uh, biologics, compounded medications. And, you know, Avastin is another example. So, you know, we've seen that uh, Avastin has been proven to be effective and safe, even though there's no FDA label for intravitreal use. So, uh, you know, we have advocated for making it available. On the other hand, we also have advocated with Congress to uh, try to get CMS to stop step therapy, which requires a vasting to be used before 
some of the on-label drugs like Lucentis and Ileen. So, you know, if we have a patient coming in who's already on one of the branded drugs, um, the carriers really should and usually do continue coverage of the branded drug. But for new patients, uh, you know, CMS has done something very unusual uh, in allowing the Medicare Advantage plans to require step therapy. And this is step therapy that requires use of an off-label drug prior to a branded on-label drug. And this is something that may work for many patients, but it doesn't work for everybody. There are you know, specific uh, clinical situations, diabetic macular edema with poor visual acuity, where we know that the branded drug works better. And it doesn't make sense to require a Vastin first. So uh, there are issues that we do work with Congress to try to pressure CMS uh, to make sure that everything is available so that the choice is really individualized between the physician and the patient and not by the carrier. And apologies if that's way off base for, for the topic. No, I think it's extremely accurate. I, th I think it's very germane because we've kind of got two different requirements that are still revolving around compounded medications and the acceptance of a uh, off-label use in, in this scenario. And I think, again, that speaks to the significant clinical value of compounded medications and working in that uh, compounding practice. So. Um, I'm going to switch gears just for a moment, um, mainly because you think that you're the odd man out, and I kind of see you as kind of the as sort of the biggest advocate at this point for compounding in the sense of, look, everything we do is an exception, and every patient is going to be slightly in different need. Um, where do you see this sort of, and now you're talking about the emeritus, or emeritus, let's see if I can get that right, um, track, where do you see the sort of clinical practice changing and and still being an advocate in the clinical training of your of your future uh, practitioners well i think that um, in residency and those of us who do fellowships i think there's really good exposure to use of compounded medications you know uh, we talked about preservative free drops that's you know something that uh, is not unusual um, combining medications to reduce drop burden. So I, I think that that's something that the ophthalmology resident gets pretty good exposure to these days. And so this is gonna be a leading question and understanding that we know that uh, value and cost effectiveness go hand in hand and making sure that we're still finding sort of the, the best marriage. But how do you identify good compounders? What are things that have been brought to your attention or how do you seek out the good compounders? And I'm asking a very open question. Sure. Well, uh, you know, certainly uh, availability, affability, and ability, you know, so someone you can get a hold of when you need, who you can communicate with, and who provides, uh, you know, a quality product that you can relate to. Um, you know, sometimes things we ask for are a little off or a little different. And it's really helpful to have someone who can guide us and tell us, you know, well, you can't mix those two drugs together because they'll precipitate rather than just do it because we ask. Um, so there, so having someone who you can communicate with is, is important. Having that um, 
you know, that PCCA label on the website is somewhat reassuring, uh, especially if you're looking to work with someone new. And, um, you know, there have been instances where um, compounders have had to go offline temporarily, you know, because of changes in uh, USP requirements and having to retool and, you know, we scramble to find someone new. So uh, it, it's helpful to have some uh, knowledge that uh, there's a basic set of, uh, of criteria that that compounder is, is following. And I think that's where PCCA uh, is helpful, you know, in, in being somewhat reassuring to us. You know, people, people, um, people get excited by the disasters, but fortunately we've mostly had, you know, success stories. And, you know, that patient that came in with, uh, you know, a severely thinned cornea and a really bad looking um, corneal infection. And, you know, sure, we started them on uh, an over-the-counter, I'm sorry, we started them on, on a, uh, you know, on a, on a commercially available prescription fluoroquinolone, but we also added the vancomycin. And, you know, that was an eye that was going downhill fast, uh, you know, and patient was likely to have a perforation if untreated. And sure enough, the cultures, you know, come back with MRSA. And the fluoroquinolone probably wouldn't have done the job, but the fact that we were also able to get them on compounded vancomycin right from the get-go, you know, made a real difference. So, you know, within 24 hours, there was less pain. Uh, the eye still looked terrible the next day, but just seeing that the patient had less pain is usually your first clue that you're starting to get that infection under control. So with careful follow-up, you know, things settle down. It was a big scar, patient needed a corneal transplant, but all was well in the end. You know, good visual outcome, 2030 visual acuity, much better than it would have happened had the infection progressed and the eye perforated and endophthalmitis might have ensued with you know, loss of the eye or loss of vision. So, you know, we've come to sort of expect those kinds of outcomes because we know we can rely on compounders to get us what we need when we need it. And that's, I think, the critical message uh, that you know, we need that to continue. If we start to see uh, availability decrease, it's not something that can be turned around easily. You know, a lot of our regulators look at things from the perspective of, let's play it safe. Uh, we don't really need to worry so long as there's not an access to care issue. The problem is once there is an access to care issue, you may have um, a system that just can't ramp up quickly to fix it. You know, the turnaround time can be long. So uh, you know, our goal is to try to keep access to these drugs uh, rather than let the problem occur and then have to fight to regain access. That's amazing, saving eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's very exciting. It's why I went into ophthalmology, that, that, and the fact that you actually see what's going on most of the time. Um, you know, there's one other item and it's out of, out of, out of sync with the rest of the things we talked about. When we were talking about uh, Avastin and um, how we're using it off label and it's safe and effective, we're now starting to see some Avastin biosimilars come on the market. 
And this is of concern because they may offer the promise of being less expensive. We're not sure yet. They haven't really been introduced to the market in a big way, but uh, we're concerned that they haven't been approved for uh, ophthalmic use and they haven't been tested the way that Avastin has. And we know that the excipients, you know, the inert ingredients in some of these biosimilars are different from Avastin. So one of them has EDTA in it. We don't know if that's toxic to the retina. We know it can be toxic to corneal endothelial and conjunctival epithelial cells. So, uh, you know, we have concerns that um, in the interest of saving money, carriers may push us to use some of these biosimilars before they've been adequately tested. So that's something we're vigorously uh, advocating for is, you know, let's not force physicians to use drugs that haven't been tested in the eye. Cheaper isn't always good and quality does matter. And I think that's something right. that PCCA stands by quite, quite firmly, so. Absolutely, and you know, and that's something that the pharmacists and the compounders are really tuned into that a lot of clinicians aren't necessarily, you know, um, Avastin is Avastin, but gee, you know, does it have EDTA in it? What are the other things in it? What are the preservatives in it? And uh, that's something that uh, a good compounder will, will be able to tell you and uh, help you keep straight. I think my biggest takeaway from all of this is making sure that we still have excellent quality and safety, but like you said, accessible, affable, willing to work with you, and then having the ability to respond. I think those are those are tenants that every compounder has to take away. Um, I, I wanted to say thank you because just as a crazy story, I had a similar one. We had a really nasty eye infection and we ended up making a sterile linolazid eye ointment for the patient. And if we hadn't been able to do that um, based upon our, our ability and our, and our service, we would have had this poor patient lose an eye. So we've had a few successes there as well. And the eye, the eye world, like you said, it's, you know, you can see what's going on. I always look at it as like, you're, you know, people are, people talk about the worst case scenario and it's like, if I lose my vision. So thank you for saving so many eyes and thank you for servicing our communities for so long. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And Dr. Glasser, it really was a pleasure. I think when we discuss compounding opportunities and areas of focus, you know, it always goes to the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to dermatology or hormone replacement therapy, um, you know, wellness focus. The, the reality is the broad spectrum of opportunity is, is so big. And I don't want to say that we discredit or take away from, you know, ophthalmology opportunities or practice, but it's just not as common. So hearing your experience um, and obviously how you've been dedicating yourself career-wise, even in retirement and serving a, such a critical role for the triad. I think you brought that up in the middle of the podcast and how you serve, you know, both pharmacists and patients, and then all the, the hard work that you're trying to do behind the scenes to obviously focus on the availability of certain medications. And it's, it's really amazing to hear and definitely you taking the time to, to stay with us and to share a lot about what the uh, Academy is all about and also the work that you guys are putting in. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolute pleasure. 
And thanks all to our listeners out there who took the time also to listen to Dr. Glasser. That was definitely a really great opportunity to learn more about the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And as always, for to follow us along on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you do not miss an episode. As always, this is Mike Delisio. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.